Don't whisper, it's rude. Um, uh, well, good morning again. Um, glad you're here. Glad we're here. Glad we are here. Uh, I want to remind you um, of prayer tonight at 6.30 here at the church. Uh, we'll be going through Psalm 119. It takes about 22 minutes to read, in case you were wondering. It'll take it a little bit longer to pray through it, which is good because we pray for an hour. So we'll, we'll have all that we need except you. You've got to show up for this to happen. Um, I, would lo- I would like it if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'll do the same. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I will read the first um, eight verses of this chapter. You can follow along in your own Bibles if you'd like. Paul writes, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the, wis- in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God, ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Let's pray once more. Jesus, we thank you that we have access now by your spirit, through your word, to a wisdom that surpasses the wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age. And that having that wisdom that appears foolishness to everyone else, we can know the Lord of glory. Make yourself known to us this morning. That's our prayer. Uh, We pray that that you would do away with any obstacle, every obstacle within each one of us, any of our own uh, uh, self-promoting wisdom, selfish wisdom, any of the, the... Um, the tendencies we have to cling to our our own strength. We just want to offer those things now and instead say we we cling to the cross. I pray that as we seek to imitate Paul, as he imitates you, that we would determine to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Give us the fullness of these truths today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, So in chapter 2 which we just read half of, Paul continues his defense. He's not defending the gospel. Remember, he's actually writing to Christians. This isn't an evangelistic message. He's he's writing to a church like yours, and that's not very flattering for any of us. Um, But he's writing to a church. He's he's defending not the gospel, but he's, he's defending his presentation of the gospel, form rather than function. This is kind of an interesting thing because you'd think it would be much more important for an apostle to just keep the main thing, the main thing, and spend more time saying, this is true, Jesus is God, Jesus is alive, he's coming again. Uh, but for the Corinthians, that's not where Paul starts. He doesn't get there for a few more chapters. Now, Romans is like that. The book of Romans, you read that, and it is, a, it is an explanation and a defense of the gospel itself. 
of the what of the gospel, Corinthians starts by dealing with the how of gospel presentation and then the what and the why uh, later on. We are a very pragmatic people. Um, that's just the culture we live in. You and I, both church culture in the 20th and 21st centuries especially, have been very result-driven. That's kind of how you judge, how you measure success in a, in a ministry or much of anything else. Well, did it work? That's the question. That's really the only important question. If, if it works, then, and if it's not technically forbidden by Scripture, then go for it. Like, give it a shot. Um, I don't think we're done yet with this arc but uh, it does seem that the megachurch culture sort of reached its peak in the uh, earlier this century, uh, with churches constantly trying to reinvent church and come up with new and exciting ways of doing church. And the thinking in many ways, among some, was, well, as long as the message is good, which many times it was, who cares how it's presented? As long as there's butts in seats, we're preaching the gospel like we're doing the work of the Lord. And people are hearing the gospel that, you know, then present that gospel in any way possible. Make it look like a Super Bowl halftime show if you have to, or a TED Talk if you're into that, or make people feel like they're at a nightclub, that's okay too. The form doesn't matter as long as the function of bringing the gospel to people is accomplished. And honestly, we would probably agree with a lot of that, some of that. More than half of that? I don't know. I'm not saying that any of that is completely wrong, but at the same time, it was driven by a pragmatism that said, if it works, then it must be fine. And that is a dangerous place to be. If those are the philosophical underpinnings of your decisions, you're in trouble, okay? When the, when the method is seen as an amoral accessory to the all-important message, it is far easier, and we've seen this in real time, it's, it's easier to make allowances for abusive leadership structures in churches uh, it's easier to make allowances for disqualified preachers, uh, worldly practices within the church. Uh, definitely a watering down of secondary doctrines because they're secondary. Um, because after all, people are coming and hearing the gospel. Now, I do think that wherever the gospel is preached, we need to celebrate that, even if it is presented in a different context, in a different flavor than maybe you would prefer. Even if the style of leadership seems questionable, and the motives of the church are suspect. Um, you know, maybe you say, well, the way that church does church doesn't even look like a church. We can still be with Paul in Philippians and say, some preach the gospel for the wrong reasons. I don't care. As long as the gospel is preached, I rejoice. That's Paul's philosophy. Like, that is what he says about the other guys. And, and so we can be there and rejoice that the gospel is preached in a variety of ways. But what I do notice in this book that our church is studying is that for Paul himself, he was very, very mindful, very conscious, not only of preaching the right thing, but in preaching the right thing the right way. The right thing was Christ and him crucified. And for Paul in Corinth, the right way to preach that was in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, not with persuasive words of human, of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith, and here's the why, why, why did he preach the gospel like that? That doesn't make any sense. This is why. So that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, please remember that Corinthians is written in order to heal schism and encourage unity. So it sounds like I'm being critical and saying, there's churches out there that do things wrong. Don't take that in any other way than a spirit of unity. I don't want to give anyone more reason to see division in the body of Christ. 
Um, style is not a reason to see division in the church. Style is not a reason to divide the body of, of Christ. But what I am saying is that for each of us that has to take heed on how we build on that foundation that is Christ, you need to watch yourself. <laughs> and what I'm saying is that how the gospel is presented is absolutely of the utmost importance to Paul. And as we seek to imitate him as he imitates Christ, we also ought to see the how as vitally important. Form and function should not be in competition with each other. Now, the reason that this has to be addressed in 1 Corinthians at all is because the Corinthians didn't appreciate the form of Paul's message. In fact, they were discounting Paul's message and his apostolic authority because they didn't like how he presented the message of the cross. You remember the, the sophists that we talked about? These were professional orators, debaters, very sophisticated, for-profit preachers who everyone was just super impressed with, everyone in Corinth. And Paul didn't look like them. He didn't look anything like them on purpose. So the Corinthians had said, well, Paul is really, he's just not much to listen to. He's not much to look at. He's very unimpressive. He's weak. We've all seen his weakness. He stumbles over his words when he speaks. So I don't want to listen to him. And I'm going to go and say, we don't have to listen to him. So Paul says that I spoke in weakness on purpose. I spoke as a fool, according to your misinformed standards of what makes a fool. And I, I spoke as a fool for a reason. And the reason, verse 5, is that your faith should not be in those other things, the, the glitz and glamour and the sparkles that you're so impressed with. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, I want you to consider this. If Paul adhered to the sort of evangelistic pragmatism of if the people hear the gospel, then who cares how we get it to them? Like delivery method doesn't matter. Then why wouldn't he just go to Corinth, speak like the sophists, make the arguments of the day, and get people in church? We know he was a capable speaker. He gives his own legal defense three times in the book of Acts, very successfully, very eloquently. But that's not what Paul did in Corinth. Paul presented the message of the gospel in a way that set it completely apart from and in opposition to the philosophy, uh, the arguments, every message of the world. Paul intentionally presents the gospel in a countercultural way and in what appears even to be an offensive way. And he does it on purpose and he does it in order for God to receive the most glory and for the faith of the Christians in Corinth to be the most secure. Paul speaks in such a way that demands his listeners to have their faith only in Christ and him crucified. And if they wanted to stand on anything else, Paul makes sure you see sinking sand for what it is. Now, who else talks like this? Uh, Jesus. Uh, okay, we mentioned John chapter 6, you know, before our communion message today. Jesus says, okay, you wanted bread from heaven. We did the multiple, you know, multiplying the loaves and fish and everything. Um, all right, uh, you know, good, good Jews of the first century. How does cannibalism sound to you? They're like, we're out. He's like, okay. He did that on purpose. He never explains himself to the rest of the crowds. He does to his disciples later. That's crazy. And that's what the Corinthians would have said. That's crazy. And they saw Paul present a message about weakness in weakness. And they said, that's crazy. And Paul says, no, you're crazy. <laughs> He says, that foolishness, this is the wisdom of God that I'm talking about. So the way he didn't speak, verse 1, was an excellence of speech or of wisdom, and that's worldly wisdom. You know, We saw in chapter 1 that 
when he says wisdom, he's talking about a sophisticated, flowery kind of speech that is really just there to impress people. Uh, and, and in truth, Paul did bring actual wisdom, not foolishness. He brought the wisdom of God. Verse 4 clarifies that the wisdom he's talking about is human wisdom that he didn't have. And that the excellence of speech means persuasive words. Just little rhetorical practices, debate tactics like, oh yeah, I can prove you wrong. No one ever got saved like that. Paul knew it. He didn't talk like that. So how did he come? Let's focus in on verse 3. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Um, the first four words cannot be undervalued. Paul says, I was with you. Now already he's very different from the superstar, you know, the rock star sophist academics of his day. So among the Greeks, a thought leader, an influential person, a preacher was literally on a pedestal when he would speak and figuratively on a pedestal the rest of the time, right? Uh, in Jewish culture as well, a rabbi was far above his disciples. Jesus himself says, a servant is not greater than his master. And then he washes their feet and says, I'm still, can you get lower? Because I'm still above you. Can you get lower? He, um, this was significant uh, when Jesus says, you know, puts, puts the last first because it was revolutionary. It was upside down from what anyone knew. So in both cases, Greek or, or Hebrew culture, a leader with authority, with the authority of Paul, an apostolic kind of leadership, well, that, that person would take the classic role of leader. He would be respected and reverenced even and seen as a cut above the rest of the people. So Paul consciously, intentionally does the opposite. He says, I was with you. We were together. It was us, not me versus you. It was us. We know the specific way in which Paul was with the Corinthians. Later in the letters, he makes a defense for receiving a paycheck as a preacher of the gospel. He says it's good and right that someone who spends their life teaching the gospel should also make their living doing so. But that's not what Paul did for the Corinthians. He went to work every day, making tents. Why? Because he wasn't willing to risk association with the preachers for hire that the sophists were. He didn't even want to risk looking like the kind of guy who would use his teaching skills or his doctrinal authority to be exalted above the rest of the church. Most of the Corinthians went to work, so Paul went to work. He was with them. We also know he spent more time in Corinth than most of the other churches he planted. He was there for 18 months, which for Paul is a long time. That means you get to know that the day-to-day -day Paul instead of just the Apostle Paul that writes letters sometimes. But he was, he was with them in an even deeper way, a more significant way. He says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. In his next letter to this church, 2 Corinthians, Paul will talk a lot about that weakness. One of the weaknesses was a physical illness, something he calls his thorn in the flesh. Most people assume that this was some sort of sickness in his eyes. Uh, he tells the Galatians that you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if you could, in Galatians 4.15. Also, when Paul writes his letter himself, he says, see what large letters I used to write to you? It's because he's blind. He's got to have them big so he can see them. Um, so in this, if this were the case, his presence in Corinth would not have been impressive in the traditional sense. He would have needed help, needed guidance, needed an arm to lean on from time to time. Or perhaps his weakness was another kind of sickness. You know that when you become sick, like really sick, there is nothing impressive about you physically at all. You are your, the worst version of yourself when you have the stomach flu. Uh, anything that might have been attractive about you before, that's long gone. So Paul says, I, w I wasn't there in my, you know, navy blue three-piece toga 
I was, you know, smiling all the time with my hair perfect, looking down from the podium at all of you little Christians. Paul says, I was with you when I was sick. That's gross. You know the real me. Like some of you guys cleaned up after me. That's what Paul is saying, which it's hard to have a respect for a guy after that later on. And that's what he's addressing. Now, this isn't impressive, but it is very effective. Why? Because Paul's message was that there was grace in weakness. His message of Christ and him crucified was that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And Paul planted that church and discipled those believers from a place of human weakness. Again, going back to verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul was also with them in fear and trembling. He'll write more about this in 2 Corinthians as well. And you can recall our study in Acts 18 uh, for some of the details. People wanted to kill Paul when he was in Corinth. Do you remember that? And other believers and even non-believers who are just Jews in the wrong place at the wrong time are getting beaten publicly by the government of Corinth. And it's in Acts 18 verse 9 that Jesus himself appears to Paul and he says, don't be afraid, which means Paul was afraid. He says, don't be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. This is a guarantee that Paul was afraid. And the Corinthian believers saw him afraid. He wasn't hiding it from them. They saw Paul fear for his life. That's unimpressive, but it's very effective. And here's the kind of weird thing about Paul. There's a lot of weird things about Paul. One of the weird things about Paul, he wanted the church to know how weak he was. He wanted the church to know how much he was afraid. Now, you or me, if we were in that situation... Like we have a, we put a high value on that stiff upper lip, right? We, we would do everything in our power to show people that we have it all together. And then maybe years later, we might tell them, no, I would, it might not have looked like, but I, I was actually pretty afraid. And they're like, yeah, we know. Uh, Paul, he, that wasn't Paul's method to appear like he had it all together. When he writes to them about another trouble he had in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is actually in the first chapter. So this is how he starts his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He said, I didn't want you to be ignorant. I wanted you to know how bad things were. I want you to know what apostles go through. I want you to know that I was terrified, I was depressed, I was utterly hopeless, just waiting for the impending doom of my own death. And that seems to be what he's saying in our passage in 1 Corinthians. I was with you in my fear, in my trembling, in my weakness. And just as Paul confessed that his own suffering was allowed so that he, could not, so that he should not trust himself but in God who raises the dead, so also he's telling the Corinthians, I needed you to see me in all of my weakness so that you wouldn't for a second be able to believe that this church was built by Paul, which ironically is exactly what some of the Corinthians were doing. They couldn't for a minute look back at the origin of their church, of God's church in Corinth, and conclude that it was built by the intelligence and power and charisma of a few gifted men. No, a blind, sick, frightened man came to their town and he tried to leave, but Jesus made him stay. And then the spirit of God moved through him. That's how it happened. When Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, which is another scolding letter, 
He asks them, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? And, and there's a similar argument being made in the, to the Corinthians. He's saying, you were begun in weakness and foolishness and simplicity. Are you now being made perfect by human wisdom, by sophistication? He's reminding them where they came from in order to get them back on track to where they need to go. And like the Galatians, who had begun in the Spirit, but then veered off towards legalism. The Corinthians needed to return to the raw and unpolished message of the cross and identify themselves with it. Paul has been talking about the how of gospel presentation, of his particular strategy in bringing the gospel to the Corinthians. And that matters a great deal. He intentionally presented the gospel without all the impressive smoke and mirrors that were common in the oratory of his day. Paul, as a messenger, was simple and unimpressive. And the message itself was equally simple. Verse 2 is important. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now remember when we were studying John's letters after studying John's gospel, and it seemed like every single week we just couldn't get away from John's one big point? Love one another. That's like the only thing he says, right? It was like a broken record. He's just skipping over and over. John would say, love one another. And then he would say, you know, something else. And then he'd say, so love one another. And then a few more things. Then he'd return to the one thing, love one another. Well, verse 2 was Paul's one big thing while he was in Corinth. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Corinthians wanted to ask questions about the Old Testament scripture, maybe. Paul responded with, Jesus Christ and him crucified. If the Corinthians wanted to talk about Greek philosophy, Paul would respond with, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Anytime they might have wanted to get into the weeds theologically and discuss some new fringe doctrine they heard about from who knows where, Paul determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, how literally should we take this? I think John is probably a good measure of comparison. Um... Paul literally not talk about anything else? Well, no. John, in his letters, he talks about other things. But in reading them, it's very clear that this was his one main thing. For Paul, the one main thing is Jesus Christ and him crucified. In chapter 15, he'll expound on what that means, Christ and him crucified. It means the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins according to the Scriptures. But this message, which by all means must be the center of every message a Christian preaches, would have been unappealing to the Greeks who seek wisdom or the Jews who ask for a sign. The cross, to both, is an unforgivable offense. Christ and him crucified was not yet a thing of stained glass windows, and the cross had not yet made the jump from torture to jewelry. Christ and him crucified was a message of weakness. God became weak and is with us in our weakness. This was what Paul was telling the Corinthians over and over and over again. And again, the reason was absolutely to ensure that the faith Paul was seeking to cultivate in this church was a faith of God's power and nothing less. There's no room in the message of the crucifixion for any human pride or boasting. And Paul will preach over and over and over again in many of his letters that this is part of the strength of the gospel, that it's all God, it's not you. There's a famous story that's been told many times about some uh, men that went to go hear Charles Spurgeon preach at his church in the 1880s. 
it probably didn't even really happen. I don't know. But the story has been told enough to keep telling. The story goes that a small group of American friends wanted to hear some of London's most accomplished preachers on a visit to, to London, but they only had one Sunday to spare. So on Sunday morning, they went to a church pastor by Joseph Parker, who was a very famous congregational preacher at the time. And upon leaving the service, one of the men said, what a wonderful preacher is Joseph Parker. And he was. He was really good. And then that evening, they went for the Sunday night service at Charles Spurgeon's church, and they listened to him preach. And upon leaving the service, the same man said, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus Christ. That tells you what the better sermon was. I believe it was John Stott who wrote that no man can simultaneously give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. Paul knew that self-exaltation and Christ-exaltation can't go together. They are mutually exclusive. And he knew that that, um, that paradoxical truth that Christ is actually most glorified when you exalt the cross. The cross, which is the center of the gospel, is what Paul talks about in Romans 1.16 like this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. That phrase, the power of God, is exactly what Paul is trying to have the Corinthians have their faith rooted in here in this passage. And just as Paul appeared as too many as weak and foolish, so also the cross appeared weak and foolish. But Paul continued to preach it anyway. Now, we touched on this last week a little bit, but we're going to get into it again here. When Paul says the cross is foolishness, he is saying the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's what we read in chapter 1. When he says that there's no wisdom in his message, he means that there's no worldly wisdom. In verse 6, he writes, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So the cross is wisdom if you're a grown-up. It says the cross is wisdom if you're mature enough to handle it. If you've grown up past this infantile wisdom of this age, well then, yeah, the cross of, the, cross of Christ is wisdom. But in the wisdom of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, well, of course they're not going to see that this is wisdom. They're following another way that is actively failing as we speak. Now, I think this is kind of funny. It reminds me of Paul's earlier joke when he said, there's not many wise among you, not many noble, not many mighty, right after saying God has chosen the foolish things of this world. You know, like God, I have proof that God loves foolish things because he loves you. Uh, it's, it's the most Christian way to call your entire audience a bunch of weak fools, and Paul does it. Uh, but what he's saying, he's writing to people that care deeply about appearances. They care deeply about sophistication. They care about how they look and about how they sound. And, and anytime, I'm sorry, they, they care uh, about these things far more than Paul did, of course. And Paul says, I was with you when I looked like garbage. And anytime you wanted to talk about some new smart theology or philosophy or theory or something, I just kept talking about the torture of God's son. And some people were pretty offended by that. Well, now he's telling these people that, the, the people that consider themselves so grown up, the people that consider themselves so mature in every way, he's saying the message of the cross, yeah, the one that many of you have been downplaying and avoiding and minimizing, that message of the cross is wisdom, but only for grown-ups. So I don't know if you're ready for that because most of you just act like babies. That's what Paul's writing to the Corinthians. The question he leaves the Corinthians in the first paragraph of chapter 2 is this, are you going to grow up? And then the, the, 
you know, determining factor there is, are you going to give the cross its proper place? Or are you going to stay an immature little child and reduce the cross while exalting yourself or your best teachers or your favorite philosophy and then follow in the way of the rulers of this age who are right now coming to nothing? Are you going to focus on shadows, smoke, mirrors, or substance? Now, this, this little passage um, about the rulers of this age has provided a fun debate going all the way back to the church fathers. Uh, John Chrysostom and Origen debated this. Who are the rulers of this age? Are these human leaders we're talking about? Are these demonic leaders we're talking about? Uh, verse 8, it says, None of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who is the rulers of this age? So one thought, of course, is that these were the leaders of the Jews and Romans, the Pharisees who delivered Jesus to the Romans, and of course, the Romans themselves, Pontius Pilate. Um, I suppose you could throw Herod in there too. If those are the rulers of the world, and a simple reading would allow for this, then Paul says that these men had known what he calls the hidden wisdom. He says, if they had known the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, then of course they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So that's one way to read this. Or many note that the rulers of this age could be demonic powers, invisible rulers. As Paul does say in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. So you can see the parallel fairly clearly. Uh, if this is the understanding, then Paul is saying that the demonic leaders of the world, even Satan himself, did not know the fullness of God's plan in the cross. That Satan, who had entered Judas and saw to it that Jesus was betrayed and pushed for the crucifixion of the Son of God, did not know what he was doing, or didn't know what the result would be of what he was doing, and could not know that the crucifixion was actually the power of God. Now, if that second interpretation is true, then the first one is too, because it's easy to see that the human rulers at the time were under demonic influence. Um, and for that reason, I think the second interpretation is a better one, but the bigger point that Paul is making is this. The people most people think are wise, the, the wise, the powerful, the influential, underestimated the cross. And these wise, powerful influencers are, according to verse 6, coming to nothing. They're defeated. Paul is saying, I determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, and I presented this message in what looked to you like foolishness and weakness, but the message I and the other apostles preach is a message that exalts Christ above all other wisdom. It's the message of the actual wisdom of God, the alternative wisdom, the philosophies of and selfish, self-centered gospel imitations that you guys are peddling. That's the wisdom of a defeated kingdom. That's the wisdom of the rulers of this age, but this age is already passing away. Paul speaks the same things in Colossians 2. In uh, Colossians 2.15, Paul said that the cross disarmed principalities and powers. He made, the, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, and that it there is the cross. They're being brought to nothing. So to the Corinthians, to the church, he says, you guys are being tempted by the smoke and mirrors of a defeated worldview. When I'm preaching to you the good news of crucifixion, that is bringing the powers of this fallen age to nothing. Don't underestimate the cross. You know who underestimates the cross? All the hordes of hell. Do you know who is going to prevail against the kingdom of God? Not hell. The ones who undervalue the cross have been crushed beneath it. Paul was so intentional about presenting this one central message Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he was so certain that this message needed to be preached in season and out of season, and, and he shaped his life 
around the truth of this message. He was sure to be with them in weakness, trembling, and fear. As Paul said, I die daily. You got to see it. You got to see the mortification of my flesh as I lived out the cross in your presence. Paul lived sacrificially. He lived humbly. Why? Because he knew that his life was part of how he preached the message. This leaves us with at least two strong imperatives. One, we cannot reduce the cross. And then the opposite is equally true. We must exalt the cross with both our speech and our lives. To think of the cross simply as the necessary and unfortunate antecedents to Easter Sunday is to minimize the cross. To reduce the cross of Christ in order to make our Christianity sound more philosophically appetizing is a horrible compromise that we cannot risk. But then in determining, like Paul, to avoid the failures of the rulers of this world, we must also, like Paul, determine to know nothing but the cross of Christ, nothing but Christ and him crucified. We must shape our lives then around the cross, seeking to live sacrificially, shunning the temptation of exalting our own intelligence or wealth or strength or someone else's intelligence and wealth and strength or whatever above the one thing Christ has told us to take up in order to follow him. Take up your cross and follow me. If we preach a Christ who is with us in our weakness, as the Christmas carol says, to our weakness, no stranger, then we will readily confess our weakness, as Paul did. Actually, more than that, we will, like Paul, glory in our infirmities, knowing that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. If his grace is sufficient then we'll be happy for the occasions that call for more grace. So bring your weaknesses to the cross of Christ, not just to be unburdened, but to have fellowship with the suffering Savior. Glory in them. Seek to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified, knowing that your life is meant to make Christ known, not in your strength, but in your lack of it. Seek to know Christ and Him crucified above all things, because in knowing Him, you will know what all the rulers of the world missed. You will know the Lord of glory. And in this we can glory. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for letting us know the power of God in the cross. We know such a small part of it. This, like so much of what you've left us, is is mystery. We know in part, we understand in part, Lord, but we love you, and we look forward to knowing in fullness of that love. We pray that the cross would be central to our church, that we collectively, as your body, as the temple, would be marked by the cross. I pray that each of us individually would be living lives consciously molded to the shape of crucifixion, that we, with Paul, would be able to confess, I die daily, that we would follow the the command of Romans 12, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. We pray, Jesus, that we would be able to take up our crosses so that we can follow you, so that we can be where you are, so that we can have unbroken fellowship with God himself through the cross. Bless us with that power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. And let this prayer song be a blessing on your potluck meal. How's that sound? Good? Sounds good.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 